this is Jay Scott, and you were listening to The Hook, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Hope all is well for everyone today. Good afternoon. Today's guest we have is Gerald Guzman, a local Chicago musician, guitar maestro here in Chicago. How are you doing today, Gerald? I'm doing great, Jay. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. Thanks for doing this. I really do appreciate it. You know, when I was putting this podcast together, our friend in California and I started talking about who... I should have on this show and your name came up because you've got a lot of stories to tell. You've seen a lot, you've done a lot, but before we begin, yeah, yeah, before we begin the first question we ask all of our guests in in the first appearance that they're on the show is just as every rock and roll song has a hook that sucks you in. Every rock fan has a moment where either a song, an album, a band or a performance got them hooked on rock and roll. So the question to you is, what hooked you on rock and roll? Uh, from what I remember is when I was a kid, they used to have they used to have TV shows like uh, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert and the Midnight Special, and bands would be on there playing live. And uh, I remember seeing Ted Nugent play um, for the very first time. I didn't really know who he was but he was on this show and he was just running around and he was playing, uh, he played cat scratch fever. And that's when I was like, you know what? Guitar is pretty cool instrument. And I think that's what I want to do. So, um, not only did it get me into really get me into rock music, but it actually got me wanting to play guitar. Uh, just seeing that the three minutes or whatever, um, on that midnight special show when I was like, what, 10, 11 years old. So and where did it, ev- did it for me. Yeah. Where did it evolve from there? Where did it go from Ted Nugent? Uh, well, it went from that to me going to my mom and dad and asking them to uh, buy me a guitar. And I told them, I don't want an acoustic guitar. I don't want to learn how to play, you know, ballads and love songs. I said, I wanted an electric guitar because I wanted to play rock. And thank God my parents were, totally supportive of me wanting to explore that avenue because they took me to a music store within a couple of weeks and they bought me my first electric guitar and amp. So I started playing, uh, I was 11 years old. So it was literally right after, right after I'd seen the Ted Nugent performance and, um, and it, it went from there. I mean, I started when I was 11. I have not put the guitar down since and I'm 53 now. So, so that's how I've been how I've been into it. So Ted Nugent made a big impression on you. So after Ted Nugent, who came next? I think what happened was I started uh, then you know listening to rock radio and I started hearing other bands that were rock bands and I started discovering them. So I remember um, getting uh, taking my like lawn mowing money and my allowance money and going to the record stores and buying. Uh, Ted Nugent, Double Eye Gonzo. I remember buying the Boston album. I remember buying Steve Miller Band. I remember buying, uh, I think, I think I bought Aerosmith after that. But I started, you know, I started uh, going down that road of um, buying albums, cassettes, and even eight track. Well, actually, before cassettes, I was buying albums and eight track tapes, and eventually uh, went into cassettes. But I started buying, you know, um, the music for all these bands I started discovering on the radio. Um, other bands like Ario Speedwagon and, and Sticks and um, Kansas and all that kind of stuff. So my, when I say I started with, uh, when I was about 10, 11 years old, we're talking like in the, the mid-70s, mid-late 70s is when I started getting into rock music. And from there it evolved into like heavy metal. So then I discovered bands like UFO. And started discovering bands like Iron Maiden and uh, stuff like that. But the one, the one you know, out of all of that, the one thing that probably had the most uh, impact on me was uh, the very first uh, album, which is Blizzard of Oz. The Blizzard of Oz, exactly. Yeah. So, what was it yeah. about? Yeah. What was it about that album that made the impression on you? Well, here's the thing. Um, so obviously Ozzy had been with Sabbath for for over 10 years before he went solo. And 
I was into Sabbath a little bit, but but not not really that much. So what changed it for me is I totally remember this. I was at a music store called Naperville Music, uh, checking out, you know, looking at their guitars and stuff. And they had the radio playing in, in the background. It was probably like either The Loop or WMET, one of those stations that were that was playing like a lot of hard rock back then. And I remember the they uh, the the first song I ever heard from Ozzy was was the opening track from Blizzard of Oz. It was I Don't Know. So they were the music playing in the background. And I hear the build up and then I hear Randy Rose kick in. He slides in and plays that very first chord and kicks into the song. And that pretty much got me. Um, it was really, it was, uh, it wasn't the fact that it was Ozzy singing. It was Randy Rhodes. Um, his guitar playing completely changed my life. at that point. And when you say change your life, so it took you from playing the guitar, you know, in your bedroom as a kid to wanting to play on stage. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, you know, I was just, just a kid, you know, playing for a hobby. And then I would have my, uh, you know, my junior high bands and we would play the talent shows and, and things like that. And it was just all for fun. And then all of a sudden this guy comes out and he's, he's got this incredible guitar tone and he's got this long blonde hair and he's got these killer guitars and, and, you know, there was nothing I mean he was he was he still is to this day and at that moment became my favorite guitar player of all time and you know everyone's got their favorites people a lot of people are like into you know Eddie Van Halen and, and Michael Schenker and all that and those guys are great and I love those guys too but my number one guy, my number one guy is, is Randy Rose and you're absolutely right at that point I, I wanted to learn everything that he played. I wanted to be on stage. I wanted to to do what he was doing. And what was yeah, it? What was it absolutely. about him? You know, you mentioned Eddie Van Halen. You mentioned Michael Shanker. What was it about Randy Rhodes that channeled you know you into wanting to play guitar? Was it his tone? Was it his style? Was it a combination of everything? What was it? Uh, well. At that point, all I heard was, uh, you know, the, the music on the record and, and what I was hearing on the, on the, uh, radio. And I was already, you know, he already got me at that point. But what really absolutely changed my life is when, um, my dad took me to Poplar Creek. It was August 22nd, 1981. It was a Blizzard of Oz tour. I got to see Randy Rose live and that, day absolutely changed my life forever. Um, I still remember um, the feeling that I got standing there watching him play, hearing him play, just, just the whole vibe uh, to this day. And I've seen thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of concerts, and nothing will ever top the first time I saw Randy Rhodes live. I mean, it literally was life-changing for me. Um, and anyone who's listening to this, who's ever seen Randy Rhodes, will, they'll, they'll be able to understand what I'm talking about. It was literally a life-changing experience for me. Now, was that the first show that you saw? The first concert ever? Yeah. No. I'd seen, uh, prior to that, I'd seen uh, Cheap Trick, I'd seen UFO, I'd seen um, 38 Special, um, REO Speedwagon, Journey. Um, so I saw a lot of, you know, right before that. So we're talking, I saw Ozzy in 81. So I'd seen these other bands all around like 79, 80. So I was just starting to get, starting to go to concerts. Um, my dad, uh, thank, you know, God, he, I'm 14 years old. I can't drive. My dad knows how much I love these bands. He would take me to see all these shows. That's awesome. He, so he took me to, so yeah, so I I've been, I just started going to concerts and it's just like you know, you know, Journey was great and Ario Speedwagon was great and all these bands were great, but none of them none of them were like life changing. It was the uh, the first time I saw Randy Rhodes live that that really did it for me. And um, uh, the only thing that's even come close to that is when I got to see Randy Rhodes a second time on the Diary of the Madman tour. Um, which was, I literally saw him a month and a half, probably before he passed away. 
You know, that's amazing because when you think about it, when you think about Randy Rhodes and his legacy, there's not a lot of live material that's ever been released. And for the most part, no one knows if there's been a lot recorded. The only really thing that people really know of is the tribute album that was released in the eighties by Ozzy. And I don't right. know, you know, that was a diary of a madman tour. And uh, it was actually the blizzard. It was. That was actually, it's from the blizzard of Austria. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, uh, the, um, the, the order of the album, um, it pretty much followed the set list that I saw when I saw him in eight, in, uh, 81. Yeah, and like, and like I was saying, there's not there's not a lot of video out there. I mean, you you can find some stuff on YouTube, but there's really outside of a handful of things, there's really not a lot. And I don't know if they have yep. it in the archives or if they're waiting for a special time to release it. You know, but really, tribute is the only thing that's out there, and it and the sound quality is great. It's excellent, but who knows if there's yeah. anything else out there? So for people to really see and for you to see him twice, because there really was a limited amount of concerts that he did because he only did a tour and a half basically. Um, right. With Ozzy. It was like a short, yeah, total short window of time. So it's like, here it was, it was August 22nd, 81, um, for the Blizzard of Oz tour. And then it was January 24th of 82, what, six months later, yeah. uh, for the Diary of Mamia tour. And then that was it. It was done. That was it, you know? And, um, I, I, I am extremely blessed and fortunate that I was able to see him not only once but twice. And so many people that I've talked to, including our friend in California, wish you know they could have seen him at least once and I was fortunate enough to see him twice. Yeah, that must I mean, it sounds like it had a huge impact on you and I'm sure it had a huge impact on most of the people that went to those shows, but I mean that's a pretty special thing to have, you know to see him, an absolute yeah, legend twice like that is incredible. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah. I mean, imagine you're 14 years old and you know, you're, you just started playing guitar a few years earlier and you were just starting to get into rock music and you were just starting to discover, you know, all these great players. And then the one guy comes along and changes, changes it and makes it, you know, he, he becomes, you know, your, your, your idol, your, your guitar guy, your, your number one influence. And, um, to be able to, you know, see him live, like, you know, it was probably one of the best memories of my entire life. Um, you know, and it's definitely, um, uh, probably set, uh, set my roots, so to speak, into me wanting to, um, to play guitar and be in band and record music and, you know, uh, play shows around the country and, and do all of that. Um, because I was so, you know, so influenced by, by this one man, you know, he, he was just unbelievable, unbelievable and influence for me. Did you ever go back and revisit some of the stuff with Quiet Riot before he was in Ozzy? Uh, yeah, I actually um, went to, I think it was Rolling Stone Records in Norwich, and they had an import section, and I went and found the Japanese release of Quiet Riot 2. I remember that. On vinyl, so I, I bought that. Um, I always wanted to get Quiet Riot one, but I never did. But I've heard all the material. Um, it's all been re-released and reissues and stuff on CDs, and you can find all that stuff like YouTube and stuff. But I did, I think, uh, in 80, 80, well, might have been 83 or 84, I found that Quiet Riot album and, and picked that up. So, yeah, I, I did go back and and find some of the older Quiet Riot stuff, but it's night and day. I mean, it is. You probably, I'm sure you've heard it. It's like, you know, um, the guitar tones and, and the solos and stuff. It's just like, it's two, to me, it's two different people. You know, I mean, he did, he did, um, I don't know if I would have been a Quiet Riot fan um, back in the day. Uh, I, I honestly don't know. What I do know is that, you know, the Randy Rhodes that was on the Quiet Riot albums versus the Randy Rose that was on the Ozzy albums were, were like two different people to me. It's like, uh, he stepped it. I mean, talk about stepping it up. He, he freaking stepped it up when he, when he played those Ozzy records. Now, now, why do you think that was? I mean, you know, here you had a band that was part of the LA scene in the late seventies, quiet riot can be, you know, competing with the bands like Van Halen. Um, so, you know, there's the George Lynch band, the boys. And I think he also had another band called exciter. 
Um, I, and I think Randy was a, was a few years younger than both Eddie and George. So he's in Quiet Riot. He makes these records, and then he goes to Ozzy. He completely blows up, but he sounds completely different. Why do you think that was? Was it, was it because he was restrained by the band Quiet Riot, or was it because he was still evolving as a guitar player? I think it's a number of things. I think, number one, he was evolving, still trying to find his way. And Quiet Riot um, was um, his way to kind of start honing his chops. But I also really think it has to do with the musicianship. I mean, you know, when he uh, when he stepped in Ozzy's band, he was playing with veterans. You know, Lee Kerslake was uh, in the Uri Heat, you know, for how many for for many years, and then Bob Gaisley coming from like Rainbow and bands like that, and of course Ozzy with all his years with, with Black Sabbath. So I think what happened was when he got into Ozzy's band, he was surrounded by superb musicians, and it allowed him to just grow and and um in a way pushed him um to to be to 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 find his way and be who he became um that's 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 you know that's what i think i mean i've never i've got friends who are also randy Rhodes fans and they know randy's family and they've gone out to california and they've spoken with his brother and his sister and, and they go to like you know the celebrations of his death and all that kind of stuff but I, I never have. I've never met anybody from Randy's family. Um, the only thing I've done is I actually talked to his mom on the phone because I called Usonia um, a few months after Randy died and his mom picked up the phone and I got to just say hi to her and tell her how much of an influence Randy was for me. But um, uh, I never got firsthand uh, stories or knowledge from anybody in regards to you know how Randy went from you know, being the Quiet Riot guy to the musicianship he attained being an Aussie fan. This is just kind of what I'm thinking. You know, what I, what I think happened um, is is that he was just, you know, he was in a way, he, he didn't have, uh, Quiet Riot was, was, was good, but then Ozzy Osbourne and his band were just super. And it's just a matter of just going, being in an environment that allowed him to just really shine. Well, he was a guitar teacher too, right? I mean, he, that's where he kind of, yeah. you know, developed his, tra- yeah, exactly. you know, developed his chops was, was teaching, which I think is absolutely amazing. I mean, imagine being a student of Randy Rhodes and, and being able to tell people about that. Yeah. Uh, he was, he taught guitar at his mom, mom's uh, music store. Uh, the one I was talking about a minute ago, Sonia. So he was a teacher there. In fact, I heard, uh, I heard that when he left to go on tour with, and Ozzy, um, he ended up giving George Lynch all of his students. <laughs> so George Lynch was teaching um, teaching all of Randy's students. So can you imagine, you know, at one point being somebody that's an aspiring guitar player that was taught by both Randy and George Lynch? That would be pretty pretty amazing. And that's pretty amazing too when you think about it, because as the story goes that we've all heard, once Randy passed on and Brad Gillis, you know, fulfilled the tour um, duties for him and went back to Night Ranger, George was, or had the gig, um, you know, in Ozzy to replace Randy, and really at, up until the last moment, then they went over to Jakey e. Lee. So that's kind of an irony of the whole story, too, as well. Yeah, I heard uh, I heard that, that uh, George actually was in Ozzy's band twice. And um, the one time that he said with where they, he ended up going with Jakey e. Lee, but I think there was a time that he was, in the band for a short period, uh, right before uh, Randy was was brought in. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting story. And, and luckily, George was able to carve his own way in in the scene and influence a lot of other people too. But you know, um, when you think you know, about like George a lot, but yeah, when you, when you think about the three guitar players that came out of that scene in the late seventies, Randy, George, and Eddie. I mean, that's just incredible. And, you know, I know Eddie and George were a few years older than Randy. Um, but to have that and, and to be able to, if you're, if you were part of that scene or went to see those bands, I mean, of course, Eddie was, you know, Van Halen was the house band at, at Gazzari's and before, you know, before they broke and George was in a band called the boys and this band called Exciter. And you had Randy Rhodes and quiet riot and also teaching as well. You know, to have those three legendary guitar players come out of that scene is pretty remarkable. 
Yeah, and that just doesn't happen anymore, unfortunately. You know, I don't even, I don't know if it was just that, that the, the era or the work ethic or the fact that, you know, um, there was no social media and there was not a lot of technology that so many people are into these days. And all, all these musicians could do is, you know, they had to, to hone their craft the old fashioned way. And, you know, when you hear like bands like Journey back then, even now singing like four part harmonies, that's, that's them singing those parts. You know, there was no computers, there's no backing tracks, you know, and, and, same goes for us as, like those guys like George and Randy and, and Eddie, you know, they, they just dove in and perfected their craft and they honed their skills and they came out with their bands and they, they're playing, you know, you've heard the stories of Dan Halen playing backyard parties and all that stuff. I mean, they just played to play and perfected and honed in their craft so they could become the amazing musicians that they, that they, that they are. You know, there, there's an amazing book out there called Van Halen Rising that I've read. Uh, it's by Greg Renoff, and he talks about the early days of Van Halen prior to Van Halen One, and he talks about how friends of you know friends of Eddie are interviewed for the book, and they talk about how he brought his guitar everywhere in school, you know, at the pool, wherever he was, he was always practicing his scales, and he really didn't change his guitar style till about five or six months prior to recording Van Halen One. And when you, and then they, you know, George Lynch and Eddie were very competitive. And, you know, there's a story about Gene Simmons going to see the boys with George Lynch and Van Halen opening up for the boys. And once Van Halen finished their set, Gene Simmons was out of his seat telling the boys in Van Halen, don't sign anything. You know, I'm going to work with you guys. So when you, yeah, 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 when you, when you hear all that stuff and when you hear about, you know, the Randy, you know, getting selected for, for the Aussie gig and all, all three of those guitar players coming out of that scene, like you said, it just, it doesn't happen anymore. I mean, there's a lot of people who feel that the days of the guitar hero are almost gone because kids today don't practice, don't have, you know, the, the work ethic that these guys had back in the day to become great guitar players. And I, and I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with all that, but I do think there's something to it. You know, now, well, kids, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Things are different now. Before, um, you know, back when those guys were doing it, back when I first started learning how to play guitar, there was no YouTube videos. You know, there was no no one out there, you know, showing you how to play this song or that lead or whatever. You either took guitar lessons, and if you're lucky, your guitar teacher would be able to teach you a song you wanted to learn, or you had to do it the way I did it, which is, you play the parts of the record over and over and over again till you get that part down and you move on to the next part. And eventually you get through the whole song and eventually, you know, and if you've done your, if you've practiced and you've done your work, you have finally learned how to play, you know, the song. And then you got to go back and, and learn the guitar solo. And that's, you have to, and same thing. You, you just play a little bit at a time till you figure out what those notes are. And then if you're, you know, and once again, you know, with persistence and hard work, you get the solo down. And that's how I, that's how I learned how to play guitar. You know, I had to sit there. I didn't take lessons for very long. I took lessons for maybe less than a year. And it was, you know, guitar teacher having me buy this book called the Mel Bay, electric, you know, Mel Bay guitar method or something like that. And I'm learning stuff like Mary had a little wham and shit like that. And obviously I'm like, that's not what I want to do. So, um, I discovered what you know, pentatonic scales were, which are like mostly used for lock leads. And once I, I had, had those charted out, I started listening to the records and I started putting the Van Halen records on and the Aerosmith records on and the, and all those bands. And, and that's how I learned. That's how I learned how to play guitar. So, um, for the most part, with the exception of like less than a year of lessons, I'm a self-taught player and it's, from doing it the old-fashioned way of just learning by listening and playing the parts over and over again until I got them. There's and even that's just that's just not how people do it these days anymore. I think a lot of people are relying on, you know, YouTube videos and and you know, app, you know, different kinds of guitar apps and stuff like that. They're they're relying on the technology to get them there. And um, you know, guys like me and and the guys from from that from you know, back in the seventies and stuff, we, we had to just 
figure it out on their own. And then that's why you got guys like Eddie and Randy and George who, who made, who came up with their own style. You know, we all learned the same way, but we started branching, you know, everyone started branching off and doing things their way. And, um, you know, I mean, I'd like to think that, um, I've got my own unique style. Um, I don't think it's, you know, I don't consider myself a virtuoso and I don't think I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm definitely not saying I'm in the same league as any of these guys like Sandy Rhodes, but I think that, um, you know, if you were to hear me play, um, you know, if you were to listen to recordings of me or whatever, you, you, you could probably say, you know what, that, that's Gerald's style. I can tell that's Gerald. And that's really, that's all that, that's cool. That's all that matters to me, you know? Yeah, there's even interviews of several guitar players. I mean, slowing talking about slowing down the vinyl on you know the the turntable to learn the guitar solos. Uh, I know I think it was John Five who talked about learning Eddie and learning Randy by slowly you know slowing down the vinyl, slowing down the LP, so he could learn the notes to play an Eddie Van Halen solo or a Randy Rhodes solo, and that just doesn't happen. Shit, like dude, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I didn't even get that kind of opportunity. I had to just, you know, play it at the normal speed, but keep playing it over and over again until I got it. I didn't even have the, you know, I didn't have a, the tech, you know, I don't know if these guys had like uh, the tech, some technology thing that could slow down the, the records or whatever. I know they get there's apps that do that now, but back then I don't know how to, I didn't know how to slow down a record. Hmm. I just have to keep moving the needle back over and over again until <laughs> I got it. My brother, my brother played guitar, and I remember him practicing "Kiss of Death" by Dokken over and over and over again, to almost to the point where I didn't know if Dokken had another song. <laughs> you know, when I was a little kid, because he just was he was enamored. He was a George guy, and really, you know, that's the whole essence of those three: is there's Randy guys, there's Eddie guys, and there's George guys. And whatever one you chose, you were picking a great monster guitar player. But I remember my brother just in that bedroom till the wee hours. I remember I'd go to the bathroom because the bathroom was next to his, and I could hear him with the headphones, but I could hear him playing the strings, trying to learn George Lynch. Um, you know, And like you said, that practice over and over again, whereas now my son, who plays guitar, goes on YouTube to figure out something, right? He, he learns the tricks just by – he's not developing the tricks. He's watching someone else tell him how the tricks are. Yeah. You know, yep. it's, yeah, exactly. it's, it's a totally different, totally different style. So, so you saw Randy twice and I did and going, you know, talking about the other guitar players, you also had the opportunity to see the original Van Halen. I did. I saw the original Van Halen on a little bit of a late bloomer on this one. I saw him on the Diver Down tour. So mm-hmm. that maybe that was probably 82 as well. Uh, was, yeah, it was a summer of 82 at USC Pavilion. Um, I don't remember the exact date, but I do remember it was probably like six months after I'd seen my last Randy Rhodes show. And that and was, believe it or not, that that Van Halen show is one of my is one of my top three concerts. Because uh, you know, same thing. Nobody was touch, in touch with Eddie was doing, and David Lee Roth was was an absolute showman, an entertainer back then, and you know. I, I've heard great stories about, you know, Van Halen on the first and second tour and on the, you know, on, on the first few records. And here I am seeing him on album number five. Yeah. I think. Yeah. It's five. So, and they still had it. I mean, they were still top of the game. So I kind of wish I got on the Van Halen bandwagon a little bit sooner. I wish you could have seen him on earlier tours, but I, I was happy. I got to see him on the original, you know, the original lineup in 82 um and then they came back around and on the 84 album i didn't get to go for some reason and then it was over right after that yeah i've always felt i mean 84 was their 1984 was their biggest record with with david lee roth but i always felt that tour prior to that was their peak when you think about the u.s festival when you think about the diver down tour i really thought before the 1984 album was the peak of van halen i thought at the at that point even though that was a huge record, and even though that record would have been number one had it not been for Michael Jackson Thriller, the Diver Down and that U.S. Festival tour, they were the first act, I believe, the first rock act, or maybe the first rock act in general to get a million dollars for a show. For one uh, performance, and in 1982? It was 83. That was just like, 
Yeah, I mean, that was a, how, how much is a million dollars equate to in today's, you know, um, you know, society? So, and can you imagine if it was a million back in '83? It was probably closer to ten million now, eight million now. I, I have no idea. Yeah, that's a lot. That is a lot. For, a lot of money for playing 70 minutes on stage. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and it was kind of a coming home for them too. When you think about it, you know, they, they, they came out of Pasadena and here they are. I think the show was in San Bernardino. I want to say, um, at some old airfield. Yeah, or, right. yeah. I think, you know, and here they are, you know, like you mentioned before, they were playing these back, you know, backyard parties that had two, 3000 kids come to these shows that were broken up by, police helicopters and small riots broke out after these shows in Van Halen and they built their reputation on these shows. And, you know, Eddie Van Halen was, you know, was was rumored, you know, at that time to be some magical figure by these young kids in Southern California. But the odd thing is they couldn't get a gig on the sunset strip for the longest time. And Gazzari's, which was part of that, you know, part of that scene with the, you know, the Roxy and, and the Troubadour um, and the Whiskey Go-Go, Gazzari's was kind of an afterthought when they gave him the gig as the house band. And, and that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a topic for another podcast. Yeah. I, I did get to go to the front. I did get to see bands on the Sunset Strip. We got to talk about that, the, yeah. We'll, back in the day. We'll do yeah. the, we'll so we'll do the, yeah. have to talk about that another time. Yeah, but yeah. We have a Sunset Strip, uh, sunset strip um, conversation because... Yeah. Even though I lived in Chicago, I would take my vacations out in California, and I made it a point to go to Gazzari's and the Roxy and the Troubadour and the Rainbow and all that. So yeah, yeah, we'll have to talk about that. <laughs> Absolutely, man. That's a yeah, that, that's a great conversation to have. So going back, going back to Randy, you know, after Randy passed, you, know, you had Brad Gillis fill up, you know, fulfill the tour, and he was on the he was on the Speak of the Devil live album, correct? Yes. Okay. Yep, that's the only thing we recorded with Ozzy that I'm aware of. Right, right. And he was, you know, to his credit, I've read interviews with him where he was really committed to Night Ranger. And, you know, for yep. him to, you know, do that tour, to finish the tour for Ozzy, and then say, no, I'm going back to a band that really at that point was doing nothing or had no, you know, I mean, they were they were from, what, uh, Northern Cal, so around Oakland, San Francisco. And for yeah, him... And it, I- yeah, I, I think I think what, what and I, I don't know if this is true. This might have just been something I heard, but I someone I heard somewhere that he took the Ozzy tour because he knew that he would get some recognition, which he would be able to take back to Night Ranger. And then when Night Ranger would finally release the record, it would be like, oh, Night Ranger featuring the guy that was in Ozzy Osbourne's band. Yeah. So it was kind of like a marketing promotional. You know, he had in the back of his mind that he was never going to stay with Ozzy, but he was going to use the opportunity to play with Ozzy to help propel his his actual band, Night Ranger. So, I mean, I know how much how much of that is true, but it makes sense. Yeah, you know? it's pretty smart so, too when you think about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the one the only thing I didn't like, um, I mean, the one thing I didn't like about Brad Gillis being in Ozzy's band is that he never, you know, he never played any of Randy's solos. Um, and here's, oh, here's a whole other topic too. There was a time that I, I met, uh, Zach Wilde when he had just joined, um, Ozzy's band. Uh, I met him at the cat house in Hollywood. He, they had just had rehearsal and here he was, here we are at the cat house. Zach Wilde is staying there all by himself. Nobody knows who he is. And then someone nudges me and says, Hey, that's Zach Wilde. That's the, the new guitar player for Ozzy. So I fucking beelined over to him to talk to him. And uh, one of the questions I asked him was like, Hey, are you going to be playing Randy solos when you go out and, and, and do the Ozzy tour? And he said, absolutely. I'm going to play him as close to note for note as I can, because to me, Randy solos are a part of those songs and to not play them, uh, you're not doing you're not doing the songs right, and you're disrespecting Randy Rhodes by not playing the solos that he wrote. And I never forgot that. I was I, I instantly had so much respect for Zach Wilde for for even saying that because you know um, so many so many guitar players have come in and played with bands um, and they never they never play the solos. Um, 
I remember when Whitesnake went on tour with uh, Adrian Vandenberg and, and uh, what's the other guy? Vivian Campbell? Vivian Campbell, thank you. You know, one of my favorite guitar players is is um, John Sykes, who was on that 1987 record with, with David Coverdale, who wrote all those songs. You know, his solos on those out on all those songs were amazing, and Adrian Vandenberg and Vivian Campbell would never play his solos. They always played their own stuff, and I I used I used to hate going to see Whitesnake because of that reason. And you know, Jake, which uh, circling back to Brad Dillis, same thing. Brad would would never play Randy solos. So, um, you know, that always that always really bothered me. I always I, I loved the fact that that Zach's philosophy and Zach's outlook was that, you know, if you're going to do an Ozzy song that Randy was on, you have to play Randy. Well, Zach's always been a purist, right? Like I've read interviews with him about, you know, whether it's playing the, the, the Randy Rhodes solos, you know, when it, when he's playing the, the, the old songs or, you know, even when he talks about Dimebag, you know, he, he, you know, whenever he does something, he's always trying to do right by it. Um, and I've always respected yeah. it about Zach and he's a phenomenal guitar player and he's yeah. got his own sound to begin with, but he does. Yeah. When, when Zach plays his own solos, I mean, it's, he has his own style, you know, it's Zach, but then when he does the, the older Ozzy stuff that Randy's on, or even the older stuff, even the stuff that Jakey Lee's on, he, he tries to play those solos as close to the, the originals as, as he can. And I've always, always had respect for him for that yeah i always like the fact that when you hear zach play you hear i'm a huge frank marino fan and you hear a lot of the influence of frank marino on zach wilde absolutely yeah totally totally so getting back to you know so brad gillis you know fulfilled the tour was on the speak of the devil live album jakey lee comes in zach wilde joe holmes was in for a little bit there was gus g and I think maybe we already answered this question, but out of all those guitar players, who do you think best carried Randy's legacy? Was it Zach? I would probably, you know what, to be honest with you, now when I, now that I think about it, I don't think, I think all the guitar players that came after Randy were, were great in their own way, but they, they, in my opinion, since Randy is my favorite, nobody could touch him. Um, I think, you know, if Randy, uh, would have lived and he would have been able to record more music with Ozzy, it would have been, you know, the music would have been out of this freaking atmosphere. Uh, he was just getting started and, um, you know, he was taking from us way too soon and all the other guitar players that came in, brought in their own style and brought in some really cool stuff. But, you know, in my opinion, they, 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 really didn't carry on Randy's legacy. I think his legacy is what he recorded with Ozzy on those, those the live album and those two studio albums and the other guitar players came in and they just kind of did their own thing. And the ones that respected Randy played the solos. And I, God, I, I've seen Jakey Lee with Ozzy too and I cannot for the, for the life of me remember how much of Randy's solos he played. But I do remember Zach Wilde playing them. So, well, I do know there was there was a huge pushback back in the day with Jakey e. Lee um, after he replaced Randy, you know, from the fans. And I remember reading an interview in Guitar Magazine, probably mid '80s, probably during the Ultimate Sin tour, I want to say, or the Ultimate Sin album, about how mm-hmm. you know him speaking about the fans really giving him a hard time while he was on stage, and he almost seemed like he was. Not in it for the long long run, and obviously, you know, after Ultimate Sin, he ended up leaving the band and forming Badlands. But he always never really, em- I don't think he ever embraced being in Ozzy and being, you know, the guy that replaced Randy. Although, you know, big shoes to fill, but I think he was always kind of resentful with the way he was treated. Yeah, I've heard that he was he was, he, he made comments or in interviews or something along the lines that he. You know, he was tired of hearing about, you know, um, you know, him being compared to Randy and Randy Rhodes this and Randy Rhodes that and and you know, it's like, dude, you know, sorry, you know, you're you're the guy who stepped in after Randy passed away. Of course people are gonna are gonna 
you know, compare you to him or whatever, but you know, you, you're filling some big shoes, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, what you needed to you either have the thick skin to just carve out your own niche or you, 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 you don't, and then you don't have the job anymore. And well, he doesn't have a job anymore. So who knows? Now he made mention in a couple of interviews, how he wrote a lot of the material for both albums that he was on, you know, Bark at the Moon, the ultimate sin. And there was a lot that, you know, that he didn't get credit for. And I know, you know, Randy being, you know, a, a music teacher and, you know, studying classical guitar. I felt he also had a lot of to do with the arrangements along with Bob Daisley on those first two records. I think those two really, Absolutely. yeah, I think those two really put together that sound and put together that, that vibe of those two records. And I don't know if, if, if Jake had, the ability to for the arrangements maybe he was just a pure songwriter or he wrote these songs i don't know where he came in on that i haven't really read enough about it or know enough about it but i do know you know a lot of people talk about the genius of randy was not just in the guitar playing but in the arrangements of the songs and also working with bob daisy because i think bob daisy wrote a lot of those tunes on those first two albums he did yeah it, it like, I, like i mentioned earlier it's like you, you know you put you, you take Randy Rose and you, you put him, he's in a band with, you know, with, with Inquire Right, with basically he's the best musician in the band, you know, and then all of a sudden you put him in a room with guys like Bob Daisley, you know, of course he's going to be able to step up his game. He's working with like, you know, these, these guys are just unbelievable. And yeah, absolutely. Bob Daisley and Randy had a lot to do with the arrangements and everything that had to do with, with those two records. And, and, you know, Ozzy even said, you know, Randy was patient with him and he'd work with him. And if, and if a, a, a certain key wasn't working and Ozzy was having trouble singing it, you know, Randy could easily transpose all the songs to different keys to, to make it work with Ozzy's, you know, vocal range. Because that's the, you know, he, he was taking his, his knowledge as a teacher and applying it in, in the songwriting and arranging with Ozzy. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, Randy and, and Bob Daisley were integral in arranging those songs and putting that all together. Now, where do you where do you think if you know Randy was here present day, how do you think he would have evolved, and where do you think he would be right now? You know, with making music. God, I, you know, I I'd heard that he wanted to to uh, to to uh, go back to school and and get a degree in classical guitar and. You know, he was already adding classical elements to his solos and what he what he did with Ozzy for the first couple of records. You know, he he would have probably been <laughs> like so far ahead of of all the guitar players right now. I, I can't even fathom how great he would be if he was still alive right now. I mean, he he left such. I mean. Like I said, he didn't have very, he only has, he has two studio albums and one live recording. And to me, to this day, there's nobody that can touch him, you know? So, and, and that stuff he, he did, what, 1980, 1981? So can you imagine in 2019, the, the player that he could have evolved to become, he would have probably just blown, everyone would be, bowing down to him he would be blowing everybody away and you know who knows if he would have stayed with ozzy but i'm sure he would have recorded with other bands he would have recorded solo stuff he would have done different styles of music he would have done his classical stuff he would have done rock and no matter what he would would have done it would have been groundbreaking and i really honestly believe that and he would have remained my favorite guitar player um Till till death, <laughs> till till I till it was over, till I was a you know, till to the end of time. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. I mean, imagine the body of work he would have had and what he would have accomplished now, and the appreciation that he knew to be relevant, he still had to evolve. You know, when you listen to yeah. D on the tribute album, it's com- so far removed from anything that he recorded with Ozzy. And you can kind yep. of see the direction that he was trying to go down or willing to go down. And that's one of the issues, you know, comparing both him to Eddie Van Halen. It's one of the issues I've always had with Eddie is at a certain point, Eddie stopped evolving. 
And, you know, you know, he, he, he really didn't, I don't know if it was the alcohol abuse or the drug abuse or, you know, the lack of motivation, but he stopped listening to music and it's well documented in a lot of interviews with people that knew, know him. And he even says himself that he hasn't bought a record. I think this was probably about five, six years ago. He was doing a, an interview with his, for his new gear, I think for guitar player magazine. And he said that he hadn't bought an album since he, since the Pete, Peter Gabriel soul album in what was that's 85 or 86. So, you know, the, the lack of, of willingness to, to evolve and open new doors for himself, you know, is kind of unfortunately what happened with Eddie, but with Randy, you know, you did see him and I don't think he probably would have remained with Ozzy much longer after the Diary of a Madman album had he lived. I think maybe another album or two, he probably would have stayed, but I think he wanted to do so much more and so many different things. And, you know, I think if he would have stayed with Ozzy, I think his legend and his persona would have either equaled Ozzy or outgrown Ozzy. Yeah. And I, 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 I agree. I mean, he was so far ahead of his time. Um, he would have done a couple more great albums with Ozzy and then he would have stepped out on his own and done even more amazing things, you know, and it wouldn't have just been hard rock and heavy metal. He would have probably tackled a couple different styles of music and, and would have done great things with those styles of music, whether it's been classical or, or, you know, bluegrass or whatever, you know, he would have added his touch to it and would have made it amazing. Who do you think, and, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, finish your thoughts. Sorry. No, I was just saying, you know, you were talking about Eddie, um, a, a few minutes ago and about how he kind of stopped evolving. And that's really sad and disappointing because he got to live. You know, Randy didn't. And Eddie got to live and Eddie just kind of stopped. He he hit, you know, he did all these great things in the David Lee Roth era. And then, you know, he did some cool stuff with Sammy. But so to me, you know, all the groundbreaking stuff that he did as a guitar player, he did it in the Dabley Rock era. And then, you know, that was it. You know, he didn't really, he wasn't playing anything that was, in the family era, he wasn't playing anything that was breaking any new ground other than using the power drill for pound cake. <laughs> but other than that, which you know, he, Which he what, stole from Paul Gilbert and Mr. Big, if you want to be truthful about it. Exactly. But then, you know, you listen to all the Sammy Hagar Van Halen records and, you know, he, he's not doing any, there's no solos in any of that stuff that that has the same impact as the solos he was doing in his first four albums with, with first four or five albums with, with Daily Ross. And, you know, that it's disappointing because Eddie, you, your, your life wasn't taken when you were 25 years old. You got to live. You got to, you had every opportunity to evolve and, and you didn't. And that's really disappointing because, you know, um, you you were given a gift of life, and you didn't do anything with it, or do anything more with it. And even Sammy talks so anyway, about. Anyway, yeah. sorry, that was just that was just my thought. No, no, sorry. no, no, absolutely, no. That's a great point that you made because even Sammy talks about him on many occasions, and other people too, that even the licks they used on the last album with Daily Roth, and I think even on Balance, and some of the stuff for the For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album were not new licks. They were recycled licks that he had recorded and put in his vault in his 5150 studio. So even, I mean, and David Lee Roth even talks about that, hey, you know, if we're going to do another Van Halen album, I want to sit down and write. I want to do new stuff that is not just pulled from the archives or a song that we used to do back in the club days in L.A., that we that now has evolved into, you know, a song with a different title or maybe the same title or whatever. And like you said, it's disappointing because when you think about even now, present day, the last 20 some years, 25 years, we really haven't gotten a lot of music from Eddie at all. And he's like you said, he's still he's still living and we've got virtually nothing, very little material. And as a music fan, as a Van Halen fan, it's disappointing. It, It really is heartbreaking. Yeah. So if I want the best of Eddie Van Halen, I got to go to, you know, I got to go to, for me, it's fair warning is my favorite Van Halen record. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I want to go back to what I thought 
and he was at his, the top of his game, I'm going to go to fear warning, you know, and anything, anything from the David Lee Roth era is, is what I go to. I have the Van Halen albums with Sammy, but I never listened to them. I always go back to the, the first five with, with Roth. Yeah. I always enjoyed to me. Yeah. I, I always enjoyed the Sammy stuff. I mean, you know, the biggest issue I have with 5150 is the, is the drum sound. You know, it, it's, it, it was produced by Mick Jones from Foreigner, and I, I love that record. There's some really good songs on there, but the drum songs and the drum tracks on there just are just, it sounds like you're hitting a drum pad. It doesn't sound like you're hitting a drum set. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they had their, I guess, you know, those, I, I have those albums. I would see Van Halen on those tours. Um, there was some really, you know, there's some good moments in some of that stuff, but overall it's it doesn't touch the rock era and that's and i think a lot of a lot of people feel so like me and it's not because i'm not a sammy hagar fan i just think van halen was van halen and they were young and they were hungry and they were coming out with innovative groundbreaking stuff and and you know by the time sammy joined the band they stopped being groundbreaking it's an interesting thing too and this is a for a different topic for a different time but in that book that I told you about Van Halen rising, it's told the story is told in there that when they were first recording with Ted Templeman, Ted wanted to replace David Lee Roth with Sammy, with Sammy Hagar, because he didn't think, yeah, he didn't think, he didn't think David could, could carry the band um, with the notes that he needed to do. And the only reason why he kept them because he saw how hard David Lee Roth was working and the work ethic that he had. But he was prepared to, I mean, he had talked to the record label a couple times about bringing in Sammy, who he had worked with on the Montrose records. And, of course, it never came to fruition. But, wow, I mean, that could have changed the course of, of music history if that had happened. Yeah. And thank God they kept Ross for the, for the stuff that they did. Yeah. We, we got those albums out of them. So, so you know, I mean. So, in closing here, last question for you. Um, you know, the, being the Randy Rhodes fan that you are, who do you think in today's music or over the past decade thinks that really does carry the influence of Randy Rhodes? You know, who do you hear play that, you know, doesn't, doesn't, it's not, it's not Randy Rhodes reincarnated, but it, it does give you that buzz like you had with, with Randy. Honestly, uh, nobody. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of anybody that um that um has come out um after Randy that I think uh carries or has you know, is kinda of carrying on what Randy started. I mean, I, I I really can't think of anybody. I mean I actually have more than you know, Randy Randy's my absolute favorite guitar players, but some of my other favorite guitar players that I that I really admire some of them came out after Randy, like I mentioned, uh, John Sykes, you mm-hmm. know, from, from White Snake and Thin Lizzy and stuff. John Sykes is one of my favorite guitar players, but he doesn't play anything like Randy. But he's but what he does do in his own style is, is amazing. And he came out, uh, when did that album came out with White Snake? 87? So he came out? 86, 87, after, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he came out six years after Randy and... So that was a guitar player after Randy that I well, really, really like. But he's, but um, as far as what you just asked, I can't think of anybody that that's, that's come after Randy that's kind of given me the Randy Rhodes vibe um, since then. I, I, I really honestly cannot think of anybody that does. Um, I, I can name some guitar players that I really like that came after Randy, but none of them um, have... Uh, carried on what Randy was doing, in my opinion. Well, if you talk and about, it, yeah, if you talk. And, 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 you know, and, and let me also state this. It doesn't mean that there isn't anyone that has. I, I just myself can't think of anybody that, that has. And I'm sure there's players out there that are, that are amazing, that are doing it, but I just may not know who they are. So, Is there anybody that you hear the influence of Randy? Like you can tell that they were influenced by Randy? Um, probably just Zach Wild. Zach Wild, okay. You know, Zach was a fan before he became Ozzy's guitar player, and so I can, I, I think, you know, maybe, maybe Zach. Um, but I can't really, 
I mean, what do you think? Can you think of anybody that's, that's I, come after Randy that, that gives you the Randy Rhodes vibe? I don't know if, um, it, if any, yeah. Any I think I, I, I've always liked John 5, and I hear a lot of Randy in John 5. Uh, John Five is just like an alien. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do. I mean, he doesn't sound like. Yeah, he doesn't sound like Randy. But I do. I get those influences from him when he plays. Now that guy's that's a, that's another guitar player that's just so so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen him chicken pick country type stuff using his fingers and chicken picking all that stuff, and he kills that stuff. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, really is. And so. You either chicken pick like a country player, or he can shred his ass off. But you know, yeah, I, I can, I can see, I see what you're talking about there. I can, I can see where you, there's things that he does that can, can give you that Randy Rhodes vibe. So yeah, did, I would say that's a good example. Did you, did you see his latest interview, John Five's latest interview, where he plays a few moments of a of a song that he recorded with Daily Roth for an album like six, seven years ago? Uh, I have not. Yeah, it just came out like I today or yesterday. Well. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to have to look that up, but no, yeah. I have not seen that. But you mentioned, to circle back a little bit, you mentioned John Sykes, you know, recording that White Snake record. If you want to talk about another guitar player who evolved, John Sykes completely, because he started out with Tigers of Pantang with the new wave of British yep. metal. Then he went to Thin Lizzy. Yep. And then he ended up yep. in White Snake. And if you listen to him on each of those, on the two Tigers of Pantane, Pantang records that he was on, and I think he was on, I know he was on Thunder and Lightning with Thin Lizzy, and I don't know if he did another Thunder one. Thunder and Lightning and then, uh, Thunder and Lightning and then the live album they did. Right. Um, on that Thunder and Lightning tour. Yeah. But that's it, as far as Thin Lizzy goes. Yeah, and then he did the Slide In record, and then he did the White Snake. So if you look at, if you take that snapshot of those three bands with him playing, from Tigers of Pantang to Whitesnake, a completely different guitar player. And, yeah, it's, it's kind of like um, Tigers of Pantang for John Sykes was Quiet Riot for Randy Rhodes. That's a great, and yeah, it's a great. Once, once, yeah, and once we got to Ozzy, once John Sykes got into Whitesnake, um, they were able to just blow up, literally. I mean, you know, um, and that's, a, that's another topic we could talk about some other time, but I think the, the worst thing David, Lee Roth, or, uh, David Coverdale ever did was let John Sykes go. Because everything after that album, as far as I'm concerned, with um, in that uh, White Sink is done, can't touch the record that Sykes did. I agree. I mean, they I agree. To, you can't touch it. Not in the songwriting, not in the tone, not in the soloing, not in, not in the hooks, nothing. Um, but anyway, that's it. Another topic, another day. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. There's so much to talk about. Well, hey, Gerald, it was a pleasure having you on. Thanks for doing this. Um, we'll have to do it again sometime. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was a lot of yeah, fun. Thanks for inviting me, man. Absolutely. You tell me what you want to talk about next time, and, and we'll get it going. Yeah, and I hope the listeners out there, you know, um, enjoyed what we talked about. Hopefully, we didn't babble too much in the. <laughs> no, I think it was great, <laughs> man. Uh, well, that's, that's awesome, man. Thank you very much for. Uh, for having me on. I really appreciate it. And um, for those of you out there listening, thank you for listening and supporting the hook. And my man Jay over here. And uh, yeah, man, I'm looking forward to um, other, other podcasts that you have coming out uh, moving forward. So everyone keep listening. Well, thank you very much, man. And uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. Take care my friend. All right. Take it easy. Bye. All right. See you. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 